How can you sharpen your competitive edge? Learn how to land your first choice residency, take part in clinical skill building sessions, and debate emerging issues in healthcare. Join us for AMSA's fall conferences October 15th through the 16th in Puerto Rico and November 19th through the 20th in New York City. Visit amsafallconference.org to register now. What does cultural competency have to do with guns and gun violence? And what does it have to do with future physicians? Welcome to the AMSA AdLib podcast, where we'll hear from med students and experts alike. I'm your host, Christine Camizio. Earlier this summer on AdLib, we covered gun violence as it affects the healthcare workplace, the hospital itself. But of course, that isn't even the primary way that gun violence will affect physicians. There are many others, from the victims as patients to their families suffering from loss. Medical students will need to be the ones to push for change, since as physicians, they will encounter the grim results of gun violence. The change may be public policy, or a community-based program, or maybe even finding common ground with gun owners. For some insight, Community and Public Health Programming Coordinator Allison Hare spoke with an expert, Dr. Daniel Webster. Here's Allison. My name is Allison Hare. I'm AMSA's Community and Public Health Programming Coordinator, and I'm currently a rising senior at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I actually just finished applying to medical school, and I plan on pursuing an MD-MPH. In light of recent shootings in the U.S., it is now more important than ever to understand gun violence and its prevention. Here to speak with me today is one individual whose research focuses on this vitally important issue, Dr. Daniel Webster. Hi, I'm Daniel Webster. I'm a professor of health policy at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, where I also direct the Center for Gun Policy and Research and co-direct the Center for the Prevention of Youth Violence. Can you please describe the nature of your research? I work on a number of dimensions of the problem of gun violence. Um, A lot of my research, including ongoing research I have now, has focused on state firearm policies and their impact on public safety, outcomes like homicide and suicide, and we're even looking at outcomes on uh, law enforcement involved shootings. Um, And so we've been studying, for example, laws requiring background checks and licensing for handgun purchasers. Um, for all such purchases, not just uh, those uh, connected to an actual retail uh, seller, and uh, finding very strong associations between those types of policies and lower rates of homicide and suicide. Um, We're continuing work looking currently at two types of policies. Other ways to extend background checks to private transfers of guns, we're looking at the effects of laws uh, adopted in Maryland and Pennsylvania, actually going back to the late 1990s. Um, And we're also in uh, collaborating with the former doctoral student of mine, uh, associate professor at Michigan State University, April Zioli on uh, research examining the association between a variety of gun laws and intimate partner homicide risk uh, at the state and city level. Um, so we, I'm continuing to uh, uh, do studies focusing on those types of public policies. 
Now we've also been involved in research looking at community programs, public health programs uh, in the city of Baltimore, uh, a program that we call Safe Streets Here, but is based on uh, sort of a, a brand, if you will, uh, of something called Cure Violence. This is a model developed by Gary Slutkin and his colleagues at University of Illinois Chicago School of Public Health. And it involves um, uh, using outreach staff uh, who can connect with those at greatest risk for being involved in gun violence in uh, principally in urban areas. And generally these are individuals um, sometimes referred to as credible messengers. These are individuals who previously were probably involved in uh, gangs and um, the kind of things that uh, are connected to a lifestyle that increases risk for gun violence in, in cities like Baltimore and Chicago. And these outreach workers uh, do a variety of things, but most importantly, what they're trying to do is change social norms around how you deal with conflict so that you don't, you're not using guns to settle conflicts that uh, could easily be settled peacefully. Um, they're also trying to do other things to um, uh, change the life trajectory of these high-risk young people to get them um, out of risk or, or much lower risk for involvement in gun violence. So we've been studying that program actually over the last nine years and um, have very interesting findings from, from that. Uh, we have many success stories with that program, with uh, lowering uh, shootings uh, over a nine-year period. Uh, uh, the program is associated with a 26% reduction in shootings. Um, but in some times and places, we've actually even had much larger effects. And we've also been able to measure changes in even in youth attitudes about the appropriateness of using guns to respond to a variety of kind of conflicts. So that's a very exciting area of work, but also very challenging because it's a difficult program to implement. Um, and then finally, we've also been studying uh, policing and law enforcement strategies to reduce gun violence and form close working relationships with the Baltimore Police Department um, and recently the Baltimore City State's Attorney's Office in something we uh, call the Johns Hopkins Baltimore Collaborative for Violence Reduction. So we're studying law enforcement strategies that are focusing principally on um, offenders uh, involved with guns and gun violence. Um, so we're, we're really covering a lot of bases. We've also uh, uh, look at suicide risk as well. Uh, so we're covering a lot of bases. What was it that drew you to public health initially? And is there anything in particular in terms of research on gun policy and violence that kind of brought you into this field? As an undergraduate, I was a psychology major um, and principally interested in the intersection of health and psychology. Um, very early on, I was sort of interested in how people cope with uh, illness and disability. Um, and I, I once thought I wanted to do a more clinical kind of profession, uh, sort of a classic, you know, clinical psychology. But um, as I approached graduation, um, 
I started thinking very differently and thinking that uh, I was far more interested in sort of the conditions that we live in that affect our health and safety and um, um, and eventually found my way to public health. I did a short stint as a social worker for the state of Kentucky, um, working principally on uh, child maltreatment, uh, domestic violence, and um, basically problems involving youth and families. And uh, that experience in a small uh, county in, in Kentucky where uh, the Department of Social Services shared a building with the public health department, um, I became to better understand what public health was and actually how it could help me do my job in, in uh, the rather daunting task of dealing with uh, family violence and child maltreatment. Um, I then applied uh, to the University of Michigan um, and was accepted there for my uh, master's of public health program where I began, uh, I basically I was introduced to the issue and problem of injuries um, and sort of became fascinated with some opportunities that uh, uh, I was able to take advantage of to work on some research projects on public policies uh, affecting uh, highway safety and, and deaths on, through uh, highway crashes. And it sort of really was very inspiring to be able to examine the connection between public policies and whether people lived or died and, and how quickly they lived or died. Um, a lot of my early work was on um, child safety uh, restraint policies in, in motor vehicles and also on uh, alcohol policies as they uh, related to uh, minimum drinking ages. So um, that then led me to uh, decide that uh, research was a, a an interest and something I thought I could be good at and came to the Johns Hopkins uh, School of Public Health to get my doctoral degree in health policy. And uh, that was during the late 1980s and early 1990s at a time when Baltimore um, and many cities throughout the United States were experiencing uh, an unprecedented uh, epidemic in gun violence principally involving youth. Um, unprecedented in the sense of how rapidly rates of gun homicides involving youth were increasing in uh, so many cities. Uh, our school is um, located in East Baltimore in a relatively disadvantaged area, particularly at that time. And um, it was, virtually impossible to um, not be affected by what was going on while I was doing my doctoral training. And it was at that time um, that, that I decided that this was an issue that I wanted to focus on, that I thought uh, both my training as related to health behavior, but also in terms of public policy and public safety, that I thought that that could translate I didn't know exactly, of course, where I was headed with this, but that was my beginning point.
Would you say that with more recent events occurring in the U.S., uh, has that affected your research at all? Yes. You know, when you work on a problem like gun violence in America, you can't just uh, be in a little cocoon in your, in your office and, and uh, just do your studies and um, not be bothered, so to speak. Uh, this is a problem that uh, affects so many people. It is a very public problem. It's, a, of course, a very political problem. And we have to take all of those things into consideration as we go about our work. Um, I have to make myself available, to, at least to some degree, to uh, the variety of interest, uh, uh, interested parties who are interested in trying to address this problem. Um, the uh, enormous conflicts that have occurred um, recently between uh, police uh, and the communities that they serve, particularly um, police-involved shootings, definitely pose a, a significant challenge in addressing this problem. Uh, there's a lot of research that shows that a key component for uh, neighborhoods, uh, low-income neighborhoods, uh, to uh, lower risk of violence in those neighborhoods, uh, building trust with the police that serve those communities is pretty important to that. So um, we are working with Baltimore police, uh, for example, to try to uh, examine and, and promote policies that basically try to achieve two of the most important goals, which is lowering violence, but also uh, simultaneously regaining trust that uh, has been harmed over uh, a very long period with uh, styles of policing that um, I think we've now come to realize can be more harmful and helpful in some cases. So, um, so this is an incredibly uh, interesting and important time in America to be studying these problems and, uh, and, and to be learning from them. So I realize this may be a difficult question, um, but if there is one lesson that you could kind of boil down your work into um, in this field, what would you say that that lesson would be? That is a hard question. Um, I think this is what I would say in response to that is, um, I think in order to do this kind of research, you have to find this, the appropriate balance between uh, very rigorous scientific um, orientation and approach. You can never lose sight of that. That's got to be central. But in order to really advance the field, you um, are we, basically we need to innovate. We, we haven't solved this problem of gun violence. I can I can rattle through a list of things that seem to be helpful in reducing gun violence, but we we have a long way to go with this. And in order for us to innovate and really make progress in making substantial reductions in gun violence that really affect people's lives, we are going to have to uh, not only learn from this science, but also learn from people who are most directly affected by the violence. Uh, I've learned a tremendous amount from the community outreach staff from Safe Streets and the uh, group of uh, subset of the, that group called Violence Interrupters. 
uh, who are very, very close to the problem. They've lived the problem. Uh, and, uh, and, and I've learned a tremendous amount from that. I've also learned a tremendous amount working closely uh, in collaboration with police officers as well. So I think it's, um, you know, most public health uh, research and, and, and practice involves this, the proper kind of balance with uh, always having the scientific rigor, but not being distant as a scientist, being close to the problem and the people who are trying to work for a solution. And in order to, again, sort of get close to the problem so you understand it, you, you have to form relationships and you have to form relationships with people um, who, are, who are part of cultures that maybe aren't like yours. I'm not, and, and I mean that sort of across the board, uh, again, using the examples of the violence interrupters working in some of the most dangerous parts of Baltimore, as well as the law enforcement officers. I, I, I'm not a law enforcement officer. I, I, no, no one in my family is. So that's a whole new culture to enter into and understand, as is uh, the experience and culture of uh, some of our inner city uh, neighborhoods in, in Baltimore. So you have to enter into those areas with great respect and, and learn. One thing about AMSA is that um, we love to advocate for issues that we find important. And one of those issues is the prevention of gun violence. Um, so is there anything you would say that medical students or even just students are hoping to attend medical school can do to advocate for important gun control research and legislation? I'm glad you asked that. I hope that anyone who's entering into the field of medicine and health generally will understand the importance and connections between uh, health and public policy. And so, um, so, so I hope that they will think of themselves and become effective advocates for change, not, not simply uh, see their role exclusive to whatever patient might be in front of them uh, in, in any clinical encounter. Um, and, and if, you know, gun violence is probably going to touch your patient population in some shape or form, whether it is um, uh, unintentional shootings to very young children, uh, uh, assaultive gun violence in urban uh, context, domestic violence, or um, the most common form of gun violence, which is suicide. Um, many, many physicians, of course, encounter individuals uh, with conditions or um, circumstances that place them at risk for self-harm and access to firearms is incredibly important in whether those patients live or die and how long their, their lives are. Um, I think with respect to advocacy, um, I, I, it's, I can't sort of boil down all the everything in, in, in gun policy in a short, succinct uh, way, but I think the kind of things that are most important to advocate for have to do with some sort of common principles or ideas, which is we need to reduce access to guns to high-risk um, individuals and contexts, and our policies generally uh, are very lax. We, we allow a lot of 
people with histories of violence and dangerousness to legally access guns and to carry them pretty much wherever they want. So we have to address that problem. Secondly, has to do with accountability. Most, many of our gun policies in the United States are really frankly written by people who sell guns and their principal um, mindset is to reduce accountability. So we need to increase accountability. Um, the, the most fundamental way is to extend background check requirements across the board for all gun sales. But of course it can go far beyond that. But those, those are some of the, the, the sort of key things that we should be mindful of and be advocating for so that um, because those are the things that the evidence suggests are most important in reducing gun violence. And then importantly, those are also the things where we actually have an incredible amount of agreement between gun owners and non-gun owners and across political parties. So these are things that work and that we agree upon. And um, so the, that should be a recipe for action. There's insufficient action because there is special interest groups that are more interested in uh, gun, uh, profits from gun sales, and we need more people advocating on behalf of the public's health and safety. So another question, I was just curious whether the restriction on federal funding on gun research has affected your work or the work of um, the institution in general. Sure, so I'll, I'll, I'll direct that head on. So, you know, I became a researcher, um, I, I joined the faculty at Johns Hopkins in 1992. Um, during that time, uh, the Centers for Disease Control was funding uh, several studies focused on gun violence. Um, very shortly thereafter, a few years down the road, uh, their funding changed. Um, it's, it's a bit of a complex issue because there technically is no ban of uh, funding gun violence research by the CDC. I've actually received grants from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention to study gun violence and the prevention program I spoke of earlier of safe streets in Baltimore. But principally what has changed since uh, roughly 20 years ago is uh, the Centers for Disease Control is very, very leery of funding any research that might, that might offend the gun lobby because what happened 20 years ago was not simply that um, there's something called the so-called Dickey Amendment that uh, if you're going to get a grant from the CDC, you have to sign something and say you're not going to use the funds to advocate for gun control. Well, that's not what researchers were doing anyway, so that's not really the issue. What really has been the issue is that they cut the funding of the CDC at that time um, by the precise amount that they were spending on the gun violence research they did that uh, uh, certain members of Congress and the gun lobby didn't like. So the CDC has funded certain projects that focus on gun violence, but they are ones that really don't touch upon critical issues relevant to uh, most gun policy. Um, so I, I, I've continued to get, uh, get some funding to study more community and behavioral oriented um, interventions, 
but uh, any I'm not gonna I'm not gonna submit a proposal and not expect it to be funded uh, to examine uh, gun policy uh, with CDC funds. And, but thankfully, there have been foundations, some foundations who have stepped up, uh, particularly the Joyce Foundation in Chicago, that has supported a lot of our research. Is there anything you would like to say to kind of leave students with? Any parting advice for people maybe hoping to go into public health? Well, public health is an incredibly um, exciting field, and it's so broad. You can find uh, something that will... Uh, really um, grab you and, and, and uh, motivate you uh, because you are affecting the health and safety of populations, not just individuals in front of you. So I think it's an incredibly um, exciting uh, field to be involved in. And I hope most more people uh, becoming physicians uh, are attracted to it. Secondly, I guess I would say is in, in being very specific as it relates to uh, gun-related risk and physicians' involvement in that, um, I, I suspect through the, your medical ed education, the words cultural competence will be introduced to you and perhaps a fair amount of attention paid to that when it comes to patient interactions. And typically, th that those discussions uh, deal with issues of, of race, of ethnicity, uh, gender, uh, religion, and, and so on. But when it comes to guns, there is a cultural dimension to that. And we have to develop cultural competency about how do we talk to uh, patients about guns in a, in a respectful and effective manner. And so I think if you are someone who is not familiar with guns, is not familiar with some of the gun culture, it might be of great benefit to you to, I'm, I'm not saying go out and buy guns and, and uh, necessarily, but uh, you, you have to, again, learn how to connect with people, talk with people respectfully so that you hear you and hopefully heed your advice as it relates to access to guns that um, that can increase suicide risk in particular. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today, Dr. Webster. Sure. To learn more about research on gun violence prevention, visit the AMSA Community and Public Health Action Committee team's Facebook page and listserv. Earlier this summer on AMSA AdLib, we heard from Rebecca Apple and Roger Gerard about gun violence in the hospital itself. You can find that in episode 50, called Shots Fired, Rehearsing for Disaster. Visit amsa.org slash adlib to hear more. AMSA AdLib was brought to you by the American Medical Student Association. I'm your host, Christine Camizio. This episode was produced by Pete Thompson and myself. Special thanks to Allison Hare for arranging and conducting the interview with Dr. Webster. Joshua Caulfield is the show's executive producer, and Dr. Kelly Tibbert is AMSA's national president. We hope you enjoyed this episode and thank you for listening. Not sure what to expect or how to navigate the interview process? Want to make sure your personal statement hits the mark? AMSA's new program, Applied Match Preparation, or AMP, has been created just for you. Get personalized, one-on-one -on -one assistance from a team of experts and get ready to shine during the application process. 
visit amsa.org slash amsa-amp to get started today.